Welcome to Radio Cachimbona. I'm Yvette, and this is episode four. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast hosted by one Salvatorian, that's a Salvadoran tourist, growing, healing, and storytelling in Southern Arizona. I'm here to storytell the fierce, ongoing resistance occurring in these borderlands and centering Central American voices. This week was crazy for a variety of reasons. The past few weeks have been, actually. And so I wasn't able to schedule the interviews that I would have liked to share with y'all. But I still wanted to come on and record a little something because there have been really gnarly developments in the world of immigration law. And if you aren't keeping up with immigration case law, in the way that I have to because I'm practicing, you might have missed these stories. And so I wanted to do what I'm calling a little immigration roundup, just to very quickly share with y'all what developments I think you should be paying attention to. First, I wanted to share a recent decision made by William Barr. William Barr is the newest attorney general. I know it's really overwhelming to try and keep track of who Trump is keeping in his administration and who he's firing, but William Barr is the newest attorney general. He reversed a long-standing Board of Immigration Appeals case. It was called Matter of XK, and it was decided in 2005. Barr intervened and said that the case was wrongly decided and he overruled it. By the way, this intervening in BIA case law is a new practice that Jeff Sessions began, and it seems like William Barr is taking up the mantle on that. And so the new decision by Barr explains that an immigrant who's transferred from expedited removal proceedings to full removal proceedings after having passed a credible fear or reasonable fear interview of persecution or torture will now be ineligible for release on bond. And as such, a person in this situation has to remain detained until their immigration proceedings conclude, unless they're granted parole, or as I see often, they ask for a deport. So there's a lot going on there, and there's also a lot of immigration law legalese that I want to break down, but that is the decision as it stands now. I want to explain First, what are expedited removal proceedings? Well, these are already a fucked up thing in and of itself in that they violate due process rights, in my personal opinion, because it allows for low-level ICE officers, so folks who did not go to law school and who never had any formal training in immigration law, who can quickly deport certain immigrants who are undocumented or who have committed fraud or misrepresentation without that person ever seeing a judge. This is a practice that's been ongoing since 2004, and immigration officials have used expedited removal to deport individuals who arrive at our border and individuals who entered without authorization if they're apprehended within two weeks of arrival and they're found within 100 miles of the Canadian or the Mexican border. Of course, really, we're just talking about the Mexican border when we actually look at enforcement. One of the major problems with expedited removal is that the immigration officer, again, somebody who's not formally trained in immigration law, is making these decisions virtually with unchecked authority. Individuals subject to expedited removal actually rarely see the inside of a courtroom because they're not afforded the regular immigration court hearing before a judge. And because of that, in essence, the immigration officer, the ICE officer, serves as both prosecutor and judge. 
So this is an ongoing practice that was already occurring, right? This is not anything new under the Trump administration. So what is Trump doing differently now? Well, these folks who are uh, in the category of expedited removal proceedings but claim fee and pass a credible fear interview are now not going to be eligible for bond. So I just want to backtrack a bit. Uh, a way, so even though a person might be in this category of folks who qualify for expedited removal, if they tell the immigration official that they have a fear of return to their country, then they have to be afforded a, a what they call a credible fear interview or a reasonable fear interview depending on whether you qualify for asylum or withholding only. And you're asked basically uh, a series of questions that will determine your eligibility for either asylum, withholding, or protection under the Convention Against Torture. And you might be wondering why our government does this, and it's because it is part of the expected due process rights that come along with asylum seekers and refugees. So according to international law, we have to afford asylum seekers a, a chance to plead uh, asylum if they are fleeing from persecution in their home country. And so why is this problematic? I think if you're a person who is an abolitionist, you already understand why this is problematic. More people are going to be encaged mandatorily without any kind of procedure for getting out for longer periods of time. And if you're an abolitionist, you believe in freedom of movement, and you don't believe in encaging humans. But let's say even if you're someone who is uh, not an abolitionist, but really believes in the importance of due process, you should also be angered by this decision. Because this is part of Trump's ongoing efforts to dissuade people from seeking asylum. Earlier in this administration, Jeff Sessions similarly intervened to overturn a BIA case, Board of Immigration Appeals case, that resulted in asylum seekers arriving at the port of entry not being eligible for bond. So again, what the effect of these laws is, is that folks end up, more folks end up asking for deports even if they have meritorious asylum claims because the conditions in our detention centers are truly awful and unbearable. Rendering asylum seekers ineligible for bond means that more people will be mandatorily detained. Remember how the day after Trump was elected, private prison stock rose in value? Well, the reasons for that really should be adding up right about now. At a conference that I went to a few weekends ago, a practitioner shared that she did a study of one particular detention center and how bonds were set within that detention center. The result was incredibly chilling. When beds were at capacity, bonds were set lower. But when, bond, when beds needed to be filled, ICE bonds were set higher. And why would that be? Because with absurdly high bonds, which I'm seeing bonds being set at 70,000, 80,000, ICE knows folks are going to remain detained. Uh, what's something that's different about immigration bond proce uh, procedures that's different from criminal law procedure that you might not know is that with an immigration bond, you need to pay 100% of that bond up front. So when you're posting bond in the criminal context, if you know that through bail bondsmen, you can pay 10% of the bond and then be able to ultimately get your loved one out through that financial agreement. But in the immigration context, there's no such avenue that you can take. And so when I sets you a bond of $80,000, that means that you literally need to raise $80,000. And that's 
significantly more than I as a U.S. citizen who's a public interest lawyer make in a year. So I think we can all understand how asylum seekers are unable to leave detention when the bonds are set that high. And why would this be? Well, because with absurdly high bonds, ICE knows that folks will remain detained. And as such, they'll meet their congressional congressionally mandated bed quota. And Core Civic can continue reaping the benefits of keeping human beings seeking healing from trauma in cages. Yes, that's right. There is a congressionally mandated bed quota within immigration detention that requires that a certain number of individuals be detained every single day. And so, like I said, if beds need to be filled, then that's when bonds are set higher. In in this one study, in this one particular detention center, then that's the result. And I just want to say that even though I am qualifying this by saying that it's one particular detention center in this one study, I, I just suspect that if a nationwide study was done, we would really find this to be a consistent pattern in practice. So for any researchers looking for a new project, I personally would appreciate some investigation into this idea. I want to say that uh, considering Jeff Sessions' earlier decision about asylum seekers arriving at the port of entry, this recent decision by William Barr isn't a surprise to me at all. I saw this coming because uh, it was actually slightly surprising that he took a that Jeff Sessions took away the eligibility for bond for asylum seekers who arrive at the port of entry because the frequently conservative rhetoric talks about arriving to the U.S. quote-unquote the right way, waiting in line for your turn, etc., etc. And asylum seekers who arrive at the port of entry are the are the immigrants who do it quote-unquote the right way. What is legally required for an asylum seeker to do is to arrive at the port of entry, seek inspection, and claim fear so that they can begin their, their process. And also, I think we should go back to episode three and revisit the conversation that I had with Ale about the dangers of the good immigrant versus bad immigrant narrative and want to be explicit about the fact that I'm not endorsing that at this moment at all. But it's a fact that asylum seekers arriving at the port of entry in the discourse of in the mainstream discourse of immigration are considered, quote unquote, the most sympathetic folks who are in expedited removal proceedings are kind of at the opposite end of that spectrum because folks in expedited removal proceedings are those who uh, already have an order of deportation on their record and they're folks who and who cross the border quote-unquote illegally but i just still want to say that that being said, these are folks who were in expedited removal proceedings and then transitioning were transitioning to full removal proceedings because they were seeking asylum. The U.S. is bound by international treaties that set out protocols for how to treat refugees. It's... I don't i feel like this doesn't need to be said but i'm going to say it detaining folks for an undetermined amount of time as their cases move forward will indeed have the chilling effect of more folks with meritorious claims asking for a deport not because they aren't genuinely afraid for their life but because conditions are that bad and detention and death to freedom is unbearable for different reasons I 
I want y'all to recall the interview that I did with Cynthia Magallanes, who was sharing her research on Morocco and Spain and the ways in which Spain is criminalizing humanitarian aid to asylum seekers, to migrants. The same is happening here in the U.S. Recently, four No More Deaths volunteers were found guilty of misdemeanor charges, not only for leaving aid, but also for trespassing on the National Wildlife Refuge. The four face a possible prison time and a $250 fine. For those who don't, who aren't familiar with No More Deaths, they're a volunteer nonprofit organization. Uh, here, it's a volunteer-led that exists here uh, at the at the border between U.S. and Mexico with, within the Sonoran Desert. And these groups of volunteers go out into the desert, into the locations that are most dangerous for folks to cross, and leave water and food behind. This is because these routes are so dangerous that folks die. I've heard people crossing who have crossed the border uh, who have crossed in, for example, the refuge that these volunteers were leaving food at and described it as a graveyard because that many people die along the way. And if you'll recall from that episode, the reason why those routes are so dangerous is no coincidence. The, the, the only available areas that were left to cross after border militarization and the building of various walls and fences were the most dangerous places to cross with the assumption being that folks wouldn't want to make that journey of course the horrors that people are fleeing make it so that even a possible death is something that's worth risking considering the fact that they face an almost certain death if they return to their country of origin and so this federal national wildlife refuge is one of those places where folks cross and frequently die and that's why no more dust volunteers were there dropping off provisions i want to point out that this criminalization of humanitarian aid is an ongoing trend in recent years, the number of people federally charged with smuggling and harboring has jumped nearly a third. I want to tell y'all about Teresa Todd. Teresa Todd is the county attorney for Jeff Davis County, which is a site of frequent crossing for folks immigrating through the desert. In February, she came across two brothers in their 20s and their 18-year-old sister. They had walked 65 miles in just eight days. And at that point, Esmeralda, their sister, could barely walk. Todd saw them and invited the siblings to her car, and she called two of her friends. She called a border patrol lawyer and a lawyer who works with ICE. Teresa Todd was unaware of the fact that somebody, a passerby, had already called 911, and so as a result, the Presidio County Deputy Sheriff came onto the scene soon after, saw the folks in her car, and now, as a result, she became the suspect in an investigation for quote-unquote bringing in or harboring certain aliens and she now faces potential indictment. I think this is really scary because in many ways Teresa Todd is an unlikely defendant. She's a county attorney as in she's the she defends Jeff Davis County, the government of Jeff Davis County. And she what she did upon finding these young folks was call a border patrol lawyer and a lawyer who works with ICE. Like, I'm sure that soon after those two calls were made, eventually ICE and border patrol was going to arrive at the scene, right? So she was doing, I think, what I would have expected the county deputy sheriff to expect himself, 
but the fact that she has had that she is now under that she now faces potential indictment should scare anyone who who would value life and in such a way that you would that you would take similar actions except maybe you wouldn't call border patrol and you wouldn't call the the ice lawyer but and so that's that's what's really scary about the situation is that protecting our humanity is now being criminalized and sharing our humanity with others is now being criminalized and we should be incredibly afraid of of these government efforts to chill humanitarian aid at the border As some of y'all most likely have seen, the New York Times reported this week on the growth of white militias. There was a militia group in New Mexico who stopped a group of asylum seekers recently. Members of the group, which calls itself the United Constitutional Patriots, have filmed several of their actions in recent days. And recently, what they did was they detained a group of about 200 migrants who had recently crossed the border near Sunland Park, New Mexico, and they were all intending to seek asylum. The members of the group uploaded the videos to social media, and they were just harrowing to look at people, folks looking exhausted, blinking in the darkness, because it seems like these militia folks had spotlights on them. I want to point out that professed militias like this have long operated at the border with attempts to curb the flow of undocumented migrants into the U.S. I again recommend Roxanne Dunbar's Ortiz's book on the Second Amendment because she traces the long-standing history between this idea of the right to bear arms with the armed protection of white supremacy, and that is exactly what we're seeing today. That's the immigration roundup in terms of news, but I wanted to end on a positive note. I wanted to end with a reframe of the terrible actions that we're seeing currently. Again, at the conference that I was at a few weekends ago, there was a professor of UCLA who was there and spoke as the keynote. Her, uh, her name was Professor Chiume, and I hope I pronounced that right. And she introduced this idea of decolonial migration. So she talked about how the European immigrants who moved and settled into colonial entities in the 19th and 20th century were actually the quintessential economic migrants, right? They were uh, settling in colonial powers because the doing so provided them with an opportunity to obtain class mobility that they might not have been able to obtain within their own European society. And as such, they were folks who are migrating solely for the purpose of economic betterment. Professor Chiyumi now suggests that the kind of reverse trends of migration of black and brown folks from formerly colonized countries entering into the current imperial powers, specifically the United States, is what she calls decolonial migration. It is the response to this previous history of 19th and 20th century European immigrants settling on colonized land and disrupting economies, intervening in imperialist ways to destabilize governments all across Latin America. And even though 
we talk about migrants as folks who arrive at our border and uh, she calls it political strangers. She actually says that that's a false understanding of <laughs> of the U.S.'s relationship to formerly colonized countries. I really appreciated her intervention because uh, she she noted that uh, despite our under- that understanding, she notes that that's really just an inaccurate understanding. She posits that U.S. citizens and folks in formerly colonized countries all like for example the continent of latin america are actually all a part of the same demos demos is the same political community and she argues this because of ultimately the interconnectedness of our economies of our ability to self-determine right because it is it is U.S. intervention that makes it so that uh, various Latin American countries were exploited and created single crop economies that are not at all sustainable. On top of that, the U.S. created a bunch of coups in order to quell the idea and growing affinity towards socialism all across Latin America. And so because of that, the the ability of self-determination of folks within these countries is ultimately tied to U.S. action. And as a result, we are all a part of the same demos. We are all a part of the same political community. And as said, we need to, she suggests that we reframe this idea of folks, uh, th- this binary understanding of folks seeking refuge from their own war-torn and repressed countries. She suggests a reframe where imperial powers need to in engage in a type of reparation for the imperialist actions that made it so that folks could not self-determine if they didn't migrate. And I found this inspiring because I think folks don't note the agency that migrants do have. I think that the detention scheme is one that runs on making folks feel powerless. And I think that one of the things that's important to remember is the power of our bodies and the power of movement of bodies. And even if folks are existing in these kind of stateless limbos because they receive, they don't receive protection from either their country of origin or the US, I think it's still political resistance to migrate and i really appreciate professor achiyume's intervention as such so y'all should google her uh decolonial migration read up on all her stuff and let me know your thoughts on social media Hope y'all enjoyed this quick little immigration roundup and stay tuned for uh, my next interview, which I'm doing with Saida, a local activist here in Tucson, who will share why she invests in organizing and building people power after suffering family separation due to border and migration policies. So stay tuned for that. 
please follow Radio Cachimbona on Twitter. Please like us on Facebook. Follow Instagram at Radio Cachimbona. If you appreciate what I'm doing and want to help a sister out, donate to the Patreon. The Patreon, uh, it's on our website and you can make whatever monthly donation you are able to. And if you don't like the monthly subscriptions, then you can also Venmo at, uh, at Kachimbona underscore pod uh, to give whatever you can. I really appreciate y'all sticking with me. I know the audio of the first three episodes wasn't great. Uh, it's hard to do this and also have a full-time job that's super emotionally draining for various reasons. And so I just really appreciate everybody that stuck with me and is still listening. And I promise that if y'all stay around, stick around, I'll continue talking about the stuff that you care about. So bye everyone. See y'all next week.